Okay, thank you, comrades, uh, for coming on this, well, in Brighton anyway, he quite heavy snowfall. Uh, that's the book for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, uh, and you're welcome to purchase it. Uh, uh, it's a continuing book launch, really. The Holocaust as an Imperialist Narrative uh, is the title. And the, the first thing is, why did I decide to write it? Well, I think we're all aware of how the Holocaust has been adopted by the imperialist powers. Israel, obviously, but the United States, Germany in particular, uh, as its own narrative. And in the process, they have rewritten the history of the Holocaust so that the Zionists are seen, and Israel as the state uh, that Zionism created, is seen as the natural successor to the memory of those who died in the Holocaust. And for most people, uh, it would appear that uh, during the war, the Zionist movement was frantic in its efforts to save as many Jews, to oppose what Hitler was doing, and to have been involved in the anti-fascist resistance. So it will come as something of a surprise to know that during World War II uh, and before it, the Zionists were frantic in order to ensure that the plight of Jews under the heel of the Nazis and under Nazi occupation was not allowed to divert attention from the main goal and the main aim, which was to build a Jewish state after the war. This was the primary goal and literally everything else uh, was secondary. Uh, and I'll go into some of the details uh, of that, but I'll, I'll give you a very easy and quick example uh, of how these priorities worked out. In 1942, uh, I think it was April 1942, the, the Zionists held uh, a large conference in America, the Biltmore Conference, named after the hotel where it was held, uh, where the main demand was formulated for the first time of a Jewish state or a Jewish commonwealth, as I think it was called. There was absolutely no mention, for example, uh, of the victims of the Holocaust or the Holocaust refugees. Uh, and this in itself, uh, I think, indicates the Zionist priorities uh, as regards to this. And people will think that uh, even after the war, when uh, the war ended, uh, the most immediate thing that uh, they would have been concerned about and would, they would have talked about uh, was the Holocaust, that this would have been a narrative that began almost uh, as soon as, say, as the, the war ended. But it's not true. In Israel itself, for a very considerable time, what happened during the Holocaust, the murder of six million and so on, was a mark of shame. The narrative in Israel, the ideal that was, was held up was of what happened uh, at an ancient fort when the Romans lay siege to it, called Masada, when uh, the zealots who were fighting off the Roman legions uh, collectively committed suicide. Uh, an example of this uh, is, the is the Israeli uh, curriculum. 
in the late 1940s and the early 50s, the Holocaust was barely mentioned in Israel. In a 220-page Israeli history textbook published in 1948, just one page was devoted to the Holocaust compared to 10 pages on the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and you can read about this uh, in Edith Zertel's excellent book, Israel's Holocaust and the Politics of Nationhood. Uh, the first time the Holocaust became part of the syllabus in 1953, just two hours were devoted to it. Really the first time the Holocaust assumed any significance in Israeli or Zionist propaganda was after the Eichmann trial. Uh, and people may recall, of course, that uh, Eichmann was captured in Argentina, taken to Israel and later executed. And the reason why the, uh, the Eichmann trial in many ways was held, as Tom Segev said quite correctly, was to wipe out the stain of the Kastner trial, which had taken place between 19, uh, 1954 and 1958. Kastner was a Hungarian uh, Zionist. He was the leader of Hungarian Zionism and he was a collaborator. I'm not going to go into the Kastner affair. It is quite well known. Uh, and anyone who wants to Google uh, can find out a lot more. And there's also a couple of chapters in my book about the Kastner affair and the Hungarian Holocaust. Just to say that the use of the Holocaust as a propaganda weapon is relatively recent. Uh, uh, and you might also know that the Eichmann trial itself, I mean, there was no doubt it, it, it was a, a show trial. It was a propaganda trial. No one doubted that Eichmann was guilty as charged, that uh, he bore a great deal of the responsibility for directing and organizing uh, the Holocaust, although uh, the Eichmann, the judges in the Eichmann trial seemed to hold him solely responsible for almost acquitting Hitler and Himmler in the process. But the Eichmann trial, as I say, uh, was really not about Eichmann. It was a wiping out the stain of what had happened during Kastner trial, because in the early 50s, when the Holocaust survivors had come to Israel, uh, there were great demands to put on trial uh, some of the collaborators, and they were uh, initially, at any rate, uh, put on trial. Uh, and the Zionist leaders really wanted to get away from it. So when during the Eichmann trial, Hannah Arendt wrote a book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, which referred back to the Kastner trial and put what was happening uh, in the Eichmann trial in context, she was subject to really... Uh, quite vicious uh, attacks. Uh, she was called a Holocaust denier, a self-hater, uh, and many other things. I, I could quote uh, a passage uh, from her from her book. She said it, it was, uh, say, the Zionist movement exploded with fury when she did publish her book. And she said, the campaign conducted with all the well-known means of image-making and opinion manipulation got much more attention than the controversy. It was as though the pieces written against the book and more frequently against its author came out of a mimeographing machine. The clamour centred on an image, quote, of a book which was never written and touched upon subjects that often had not only been, had only not been mentioned by me, but had never occurred to me before. So, I mean, this is how 
those who have questioned the Zionist narrative uh, have often uh, been treated. As I say, the, uh, the Holocaust itself was in many ways dealt with, uh, <laughs> with disgust, uh, with aversion in Israel. Uh, the Holocaust uh, victims were not seen as good examples, on the contrary. They were examples of all that was worse than diaspora. In the words of Gideon Hausner, who was the prosecutor in the Eichmann trial, uh, the Jews had gone, to, gone like sheep to their slaughter. They were the worst possible examples for a young, defiant nation that was uh, springing up. And that was why the example of Masada, where Jews were willing to die if necessary for their cause, was so important. Uh, and and Ben-Gurion was uh, prominent in that. If I can quote uh, again uh, from my book, Ben-Gurion had, an, uh, I quote here from Ian Lustig, uh, an essay that he wrote, Ben-Gurion had, an, I quote, a genuine disgust for Jewish life in the diaspora and a sense of distance between the defiant, healthy nation of Jews gathering in the land of Israel and the misshapen, impotent and craven mass of Jews who had remained in Europe to be slaughtered. And as Ben-Gurion believed that Jewish distress uh, could serve as political leverage, and that is in, it is in our interest to use Hitler for the building of our country. So that was really why uh, the Eichmann trial was held. Another example would be uh, Nancy Bryant Brand, who was the wife of uh, Joel Brand uh, and uh, the lover of Kastner himself. Uh, and she was quite clear. She described her what happened when she came to Israel, when she settled on Kibbutz Gavata Haim. And the other members talked about their war, that is the Second World War, to avoid hearing about hers. Israelis listened to the survivors' stories, as Yisrael Gutman said, with a forced patience that was soon, was soon exhausted. And if uh, Israelis were ashamed of the diaspora, then, of course, many Holocaust survivors bitterly resented the Yeshua. Uh, to quote one uh, displaced persons leader, Yosef Rosensaft, uh, a, a displaced persons leader at Belson, uh, who settled in America, you danced the horror while we were being burned in the crematoriums. So, I mean, the Holocaust was a very contested narrative. And indeed, in America, uh, Jewish leaders didn't speak about it, and there was, there was a very good reason. Uh, if you spoke about the Holocaust and what had happened, you often see this being akin to a communist. And in Mac the McCarthy era, that was not something that people really wanted to be associated with. For example, uh, during the funeral for the, uh, the Rosenbergs who were executed, they sang the song of the Warsaw Ghetto. It was the communists who went on about the Holocaust, not the Zionists. This was, of course, all to change, and the Holocaust developed into what I would call an imperialist weapon. But at the time, uh, immediately in the immediate wake of the Holocaust, it was not a narrative that was, or a weapon that was used very often. Uh, and the reason why 
uh, was simple because an anti-fascist narrative did not accord with the US imperialist interest at the time. They really wanted to forget about it. And there's a very good book by Peter Novick, The Holocaust in American Life, which actually goes into this in some detail. And Yitzhak Laor, I think, really described how the Holocaust became to be used. His explanation was that and this was, of course, post-Eichmann, that the Holocaust consolidated a new ideology of exclusion. And he said, now it is the Jews of the insiders. The genocide and the Jews served in the construction of a European identity. And I, I think this is really very important uh, when we think about it, the ways that the Holocaust have been used. I mean, the most obvious ways, obviously, are the way that Israel is seen as a legitimate heir to those who, who died. But at the time, for example, it was very important when there was incredible hostility, not only in Israel, but in, in uh, amongst Jews in the West, and not just Jews, to the idea of German rearmament, for example. And Israel and West Germany, as it was at the time, basically struck a deal. Israel got reparations, and they didn't go to the Holocaust survivors, they went to Israel collectively. Uh, and this involved basically rearming Israel, providing it with, uh, in the end, nuclear technology, submarines, and so on, in return for which Israel koshered West Germany, which was, of course, became an integral part of NATO. And that was very important. So the way the Holocaust was used and manipulated aided in the construction of a new Western alliance. Uh, let's say West Germany. Uh, became a, a, a central foundation of that alliance. And we see the way that the Holocaust uh, and the Western experience and the Western involvement was rewritten. It was rewritten, the, what was an inter-imperialist war as an anti-fascist war. So for example, uh, there was no mention of the, uh, the famine in Bengal, for example, in 1942, when Three million, up to three million Indians died uh, as a result of a famine that was artificially engendered when we were exporting food at the same time as people were starving. Uh, there's no mention, for example, I mean, I can give you a, a very good example. There was a Ministry of Information uh, in uh, Britain, which was thinking of distributing leaflets about the appalling racism of the Nazis until the, the colonial ministry stepped in and said, well, you can't do that because many of the things you're describing are exactly what we do in the African colonies. And therefore it'd be extremely embarrassing to have this pointed out to us. So, I mean, there were many uh, contradictions, but I say the history of the Second World War, the history of the Holocaust has been rewritten. For example, I think people are aware that the uh, Zionists played very little part in the resistance, in the Jewish resistance. And indeed, uh, those Zionist fighters who fought, for example, in the Warsaw Ghetto, people like Taj Klinger, were specifically instructed by the leadership in Palestine, by the youth movements there, not to take part in the resistance, but by any means, to get to Palestine where they were needed. Uh, and, that, and to their credit, they refused this. And I say this is 
in my book in some detail. We have the situation where Klinger in particular, after the, well, not after the war, in 1944, went to Palestine uh, and she made a, a speech to the Histadrut executive, uh, which is described in the, the, a book by uh, Dina Porat, who's now the chief historian of Yad Vashem, uh, The Blue and Yellow Stars uh, of David. Uh, she described me how members of the Jewish Council as having become tools of suppression in the hands of the authorities and that they played an abject role in the destruction of the Jews. And although members of the Yiddenrat, uh, the Jewish councils, had not at first known what the Nazis' intention were, and I quote, there were instances of clear knowledge and they lied knowingly to the deportees. And she told the executive of Histadrut, that's the Zionist trade union, so-called, the various, and I'm quoting directly, the various Jewish communities in Europe were headed by members of the Zionist movement, and most of them understood that if the Nazis said A, they would need to carry on and do B. And after they began assisting the Nazis to collect gold and furniture from Jewish homes, they had no choice but to go on to help them prepare lists of Jews for labor camps. And precisely because those who stood at the head of most of the communities were Zionists, the psychological effects on most of the Jewish masses vis-a-vis -vis the Zionist idea was devastating. And the hatred towards Zionism grew day by day. One bright day, we will need to try these people. It must be clearly and publicly said that many Zionists betrayed their people. Yes, one must try Chaim Molchadsky, the head of the JNF in Betzin, unquote. And in fact, as I say, uh, there were something like 36 resistance fighters in the Warsaw Ghetto who escaped through the sewers, uh, sewers to the, the Aryan part of Warsaw, and uh, some of them got to Palestine. And what was remarkable was that their memoirs, their diaries, their writings were either censored or changed, sometimes out of all recognition. So, for example, Hajj Kalinga's uh, memoirs, you have to go to the original diaries in, in order to actually understand. She was a member of Hashem Hatzer, which became Mapam, and they quite shamelessly changed what she wrote uh, in order to accord with her own narrative. She committed suicide, I think it was about 1955, uh, but it wasn't till uh, I think about five, six years ago, that her diaries were eventually republished in their original form. But just to say that the whole history of the Holocaust from the Zionist point of view was rewritten in order to, uh, to conform with their own narrative. I think someone, uh, no, I can't find it, but I'll, I'll go back to it later. Uh, but the way the, the Holocaust has been used, I mean, uh, I mean, I think people uh, will be aware of the, sh of, of the quite shameless way, many uh, ways it was used. I mean, for instance, Menachem Begin, when uh, Israeli troops were surrounding Beirut, uh, Yasser Arafat became Hitler in his bunker. Abbe Eben talked of uh, the green line between the West Bank and the uh, 1948 uh, Israeli borders as the Auschwitz borders. Uh, there are many such examples of how the Holocaust has been weaponized, not least, of course, uh, the definition of anti-Semitism, 
which has been used so it conflates anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, opposition to what Israel does uh, with anti-Semitism. It's called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and that is really quite deliberate that they have subsumed the definition, which has been now used, of course, as a weapon against anyone who criticizes Israel in terms of the Holocaust itself. Uh, and that, in a sense, is part of the propaganda uh, weapon that it, it has been used. So I would like to concentrate, really, on the, the, what the, I mean, the attitude and the actual practice of the Zionist movement before and during the Holocaust, because uh, it differs markedly uh, from what we would understand now. In essence, uh, if I can sum, summarize it quite briefly, the aim of the Zionist movement, which was a counter-revolutionary reactionary movement from the start, was to build a Jewish state. That was its primary aim. And it saw the Holocaust in essence, and the oppression, the, the Nazi uh, rule over Jews, as a complete diversion. Uh, it was not something they really wanted to be bothered about. Not only that, they also feared that if there could be a solution to the refugee question, if other countries could accept Jewish refugees from Germany or Poland or anywhere else, then what was the point of having a Jewish state in the first place? Not only that, but of course, it was part of uh, Zionist ideology, going back to Herzl's uh, statements uh, and writings in the Jewish state, uh, the Yiddenstadt, uh, the very first uh, pamphlet, uh, or the major pamphlet, the founding pamphlet of the Zionist movement, that wherever Jews go, they take anti-Semitism with them. And so from their logic, for Jews to say go from uh, Germany to Britain or to the United States would simply mean they recreate anti-Semitism elsewhere. Their solution was, of course, to be able to solve the Jewish question by establishing a Jewish state. And therefore, any solution to the refugee question, which didn't involve Palestine, was simply a palliative. And I think they are well known, but I, I, I will give some examples. In 1938, the United States held a conference on Jewish refugees. It was called Evian after a spa town in France. And the Zionists were extremely upset about this. I have to say, when uh, when Roosevelt held this uh, conference, it, it was really a face-saving exercise. It was held on the basis that all those who attended did not have to change their refugee uh, policies. Uh, and most of the countries who therefore took part had policies like the United States, which basically prevented uh, the immigration of all but a few refugees to begin with. But the Jewish agency decided, it was on June the 26th, 1938, to belittle the Evian Conference as far as possible and to cause it to decide nothing. We are particularly, this is from incidentally Boaz Evren's pamphlet uh, or, or book really, The Jewish State or Israeli Nation. Uh, We're particularly worried that it would move Jewish organizations to collect large sums of money for aid to Jewish refugees. 
and these corrections would interfere or could interfere with our correction efforts. And Ben-Gurion, at a meeting of the Jewish agency executive uh, of the same date, pulled no punches, uh, no rationalizations, he, he stated, can turn the conference from a harmful to a useful one. What can and should be done is to limit the damage as far as possible. So a conference which might possibly help solve the Jewish refugee uh, problem was a harmful one. And Menachem Masishkin, who was a, a leading Russian Zionist at the same meeting, cited the fears of, the of uh, Yitzhak Greenbaum, uh, who was the future chair of the Jewish Agency Rescue Committee. And he said, Greenborn hopes to hear in Evion that Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, remains the main venue for Jewish emigration. All other emigration countries do not interest him. The greatest danger is that attempts will be made to find other territories for Jewish emigration. Uh, in other words, the Jewish agency was worried that Evion might succeed. Its wish uh, for the conference was for the conference to fail abysmally. And in a letter to Stephen Weiss, who was the leader of American uh, Zionism of the 13th of June, 1938, George Lander, who was later the director of the Jewish agency's Central Bureau for the Settlement of German Jews, wrote of his concern. Even if the conference will not place countries other than Palestine in, in the front for Jewish immigration, there will certainly be public appeals which will tend to overshadow the importance of Palestine. It may bind Jewish organizations to collect large sums of money for assisting Jewish refugees, and these collections are likely to interfere with our own campaigns. And Christopher Sykes, who's a pro-Zionist historian uh, in his book, Crossroads for Israel, wrote of this, and he's a very sympathetic uh, uh, historian uh, to Zionism, and he understood the logic uh, uh, of what was being said. He said, from the start, they, that is the Zionist movement, regarded the whole enterprise of Evion with hostile indifference. If the 31 nations who attended had done their duty and shown hospitality to those in dire need, then the pressure on the national home and the heightened enthusiasm of Jews with Palestine would both have been relaxed. And I emphasize this in my book, that this was the last thing that the Zionist leaders wished for. Even in the more terrible days ahead, they made no secret of the fact, even when talking to Gentiles, non-Jews, they did not want Jewish settlements outside Palestine to be successful. The Zionists wanted to do something more for Jews than merely help them to escape danger. That such was the basic Zionist idea is not a matter of opinion, but a fact abundantly pr provable by evidence. And uh, I could quote other historians. I mean, for example, Noah Lucas, who was a, a critical Zionist historian based at Sheffield University, uh, said exactly the same. And Robert Silverberg, another Zionist uh, historian in his book, uh, wrote that truly dedicated Zionists hoped for the failure of the Evian talks. How disastrous it would be for Zionism if Australia, say, were to agree to admit a million Jews at once, because there were a couple of projects uh, whereby Jews would go to uh, Darwin, 
uh, and the free event enterprise, uh, amongst others. They did not want a Jewish colony in Australia. They wanted Europe suffering Jews to go only to Palestine. And if getting them there meant a prolongation of their suffering until the political climate was right, so be it. So say this is this is not an anti-Zionist writing. Uh, this was a, a, a Zionist. So it was with absolute marked indifference, uh, uh, if not hostility, that the Zionists viewed any other opportunity, any other solution to the refugee question that did not involve Zionism. And this was true, of course, of the boards of deputies. Uh, you may uh, remember, or you may not remember, but it, it's a very famous quote uh, from Ben-Gurion. You will know of Kristallnacht, uh, the night of the broken glass uh, in November 1938, which was really a Nazi pogrom uh, against the Jews when uh, something like 100 Jews were killed. Nearly every synagogue in Germany was burnt out. 30,000 Jews were put in concentration camps. It was this, uh, this event which made clear, I think, Hitler's intention for the Jews. And uh, in Britain, uh, the leaders of the Jewish community, uh, including the Board of Deputies, which then was not under contr the control of the Zionists, that only happened in 1940, with the ascent to the presidency of someone called Celia Grudetsky, uh, they pressured the British government to accept 10,000 unaccompanied Jewish children from greater Germany who came to this country. And what was the reaction of the Zionists? Well, uh, I can give you a quote from Ben-Gurion. This is in the official biography uh, of Ben-Gurion by Shabtai Tabeth. So I mean, there's no doubt about the veracity uh, of the quote, and Ben-Gurion said, if I knew that it would be possible to save all the children in Germany by bringing them over to England, and only half of them by transporting them to Eretz Israel, then I would opt for the second alternative. But we must weigh not only the life of these children, but also the history of the people of Israel. This was a speech given to the MAPAI, the Israeli Labour Party's Central Committee, on the 9th of December 1938. That is a month after Kristallnacht. Ben-Gurion was worried that the human conscience might persuade countries to open their doors uh, to the Jewish refugees. He warned Zionism is in danger. And according to his logic, if other countries could save Europe's Jews, then what was the need for a Jewish Palestine? Uh, and Ben-Gurion wrote uh, a week later, on the 17th of December 1938, to the Zionist executive, if the Jews are faced with a choice between the refugee problem and rescuing Jews from concentration camps on the one hand, and aid for the National Museum in Palestine on the other, the Jewish sense of pity will prevail and our people's entire strength will be directed to aid for the refugees in the various countries, Zionism will vanish from the agenda. And indeed, not only world public opinion in England and America, but also from Jewish public opinion. And then he warned, we are risking Zionism's very existence if we allow the refugee problem to be separated from the Palestine problem. So I mean, it, it was abundantly clear as to what the position 
uh, of the Zionists were. And for example, uh, they at no time when proposals were made, for instance, in Congress to relax the American uh, ref, uh, immigration controls, the Zionists resolutely failed to give any support. And, and it, in fact, it, it was worse because in 1944, they attempted to stymie the setting up of uh, the War Refugee Board very late in the day, January 1944. But nonetheless, it, it came into operation as a result of the actions and the campaigning of dissident Zionists, Shmuel Merlin, Peter Bergson, uh, revisionists, incidentally, not Labour Zionists. Uh, and that might make you think about the divisions that we normally understand between left and right Zionists. It was actually the right-wing Zionists who were more uh, committed, or some of them anyway, to saving the refugees and the Labour Zionists who were absolutely dedicated to the policy that Ben-Gurion had outlined. I, I, I want to give an example uh, of the Board of Deputies because we all know that the Board of Deputies was very concerned about anti-Semitism not least in the Labour Party, uh, as some people will know. Stan will know in particular because he had a conversation uh, at a demonstration the Board of Deputies held outside the House of Parliament and he, he uh, had some problems with his employer uh, as a result. Uh, and people may, it was in March 2018, just before the local elections, when the Board of Deputies held the first demonstration against anti-Semitism, or so they said, uh, in Britain. And so, uh, well-known anti-racists like Norman Tebbit, uh, Ian Paisley Jr., uh, Sajid Javid, uh, and so on, attended that demonstration. As far as I'm aware, I can find no other example of the Board of Deputies ever having called a demonstration against racism or anti-Semitism in its 240-year history. It was only when that, uh, when Jeremy Corbyn, you know, uh, someone who'd clearly been uh, campaigning uh, against Jews, uh, materialized on the scene, that the Board of Deputies went into action. Uh, and you, you might well, of course, ask why. And I came across in a, a pamphlet uh, by Mayor Samplinsky, uh, Another example of a demonstration, this was in 1942. In 1942, in the spring of 1942, the first deportation of Jews to the extermination camps occurred. It was from Slovakia. Uh, it was under Dieter Vysliceni. I, I don't need to go into the details, though, if people want, I, I'm happy to. But this was the first deportation of Jews. They were deported to Lublin and then from there to either Sobibor or Auschwitz itself. And in London, the Federation of Czechoslovakian Jews published a protest and asked for the Board of Deputies' cooperation. They refused. The reason was their demands, quote, went against the grain, unquote, of the Board's passive attitude to news of the atrocities. But the Federation went ahead and it held a public demonstration and a rally in early 1942. The Bishop of London spoke, two Christian MPs spoke, and the Czech Interior and Rehabilitation Minister spoke, but not the Board of Deputies. 
Both the secretary, Abraham Brockman, and the president, Celia Brodetsky, refused to attend. So I think this gives us some clue, in a sense, about the real attitude of the Board of Deputies to the fight against fascism and anti-Semitism. We all know that the Board of Deputies in 1936, at the time of the Battle of Cable Street, uh, when Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists attempted to march through the East Ends of London, uh, and something like 200,000 people, mainly non-Jews, non-Jewish dockers in particular, but also thousands of Jewish workers mobilized to oppose Mosley, the Board of Deputies' advice was for Jews to stay at home, keep their heads down, say absolutely nothing. So we can see, I think, clearly that the Board of Deputies, once it had been captured by the Zionists, uh, was useless as an instrument fighting anti-Semitism and racism. And today, of course, we know that its main job is defense of Israel, right or wrong. And we might well think, I mean, uh, this point was made uh, quite clearly uh, by Semplinsky that if the Board of Deputies had been captured, not in 1940, but in 1938 by the Zionists, then the children who were saved in the kinder transport might have been one more grisly statistic because the Board of Deputies would not have pressed them to come to Britain. Uh, and that, that is really worth thinking about uh, because people are often afraid to make this. But I want to really conclude in a sense uh, with having a look at the Labour rights because of course, People like John Mann, uh, Tom Watson, uh, Wes Streeting, and all the others were vigorously opposed to anti-Semitism. You would have thought they were standard bearers in the fight against racism. But they, in fact, historically, and unfortunately, the Labour left was never aware of this because the, hist the history of uh, uh, or the historical understanding of people in the Labour Party has often been very limited. But when the question of admitting Jewish refugees came before the British government and Herbert Morrison was the secretary, Herbert Morrison is, was the grandfather of Peter Mandelson, he was absolutely opposed uh, to, to their admission in anything but the smallest of numbers. And again, I will uh, give you some examples. Actually, himself proposed in January 1943 that was just after the Holocaust. The news of the Holocaust had been announced by the Allies. Uh, that was in December 1942, December 17th, 1942. When Atlee proposed in the January a draft parliamentary statement which said that, quote, any ref such refugees as may arrive in the United Kingdom will be admitted, unquote, Morrison advised him to remove this promise because it gave the impression if Jewish refugees are placed on some worthless boats and sent to a British port, that is a way of disposing of them. And this really brings to mind uh, similar attitudes uh, today. And in October of 1942, just before the announcement by the Jewish agency uh, in November of the Holocaust, Morrison received a delegation of churchmen, public figures such as Lord Astor, Eleanor Rathbone, asking for visas for 2,000 Jewish children and the elderly in Vichy, France, uh, because the Germans were soon to overrun Vichy, France. Morrison refused. 
his reason was that anti-Semitism was, quote, just under the pavement, unquote. A month later, the Nazis overran Vichy, France, and these Jews were deported to Auschwitz. Uh, and the pamphlet I quote this from uh, by Claire Erbach says that Morrison was said to doubt that there was a Holocaust. And on the 31st of December 1942, he made it clear that he could not agree that the door should be open to the entry of uncategorized Jews. Morrison believed that if all the Jews were allowed to remain in Britain after the war, quote, they might be an explosive element in the country, especially if the economic situation deteriorated. And if I translate that into normal English, what that means is that Morrison subscribed to the theory that Jews were communists, and in the event of uh, strikes and struggle after the war, they would play a prominent part in that, and he really did not want them uh, to be coming to this country. So, I mean, that was the anti-Semitism of the Labour right. I mean, that was Morrison. But, I mean, I could give uh, many, many other examples. For example, uh, Ramsay MacDonald. When Matt Ramsay MacDonald went uh, to Palestine in 1922 at the invitation of Powell Zion, uh, and when he came back, he wrote a pamphlet which... Howell Zion, which is now the Jewish labor movement, uh, printed, uh, and I quote from it, uh, the rich plutocratic Jew, who is the true economic materialist, he is the person whose views upon life make one anti-Semitic. He has no country, no kindred, whether it's a sweater or a financier, he is an exploiter of everything he can squeeze. He is behind every evil that the governments do, and his political authority, always exercised in the dark, is greater than that of parliamentary majorities. He detests Zionism because it revives the idealism of his race. I say, I mean, he not only wrote that, but he wrote that in a pamphlet published by Paul Zion, the Jewish labor movement today. So it might be worth people reminding them of actually what they did print, because that is so clearly anti-Semitic. Uh, it's not even worth arguing the toss. And similarly, Sidney Webb uh, in another, uh, Sidney Webb, of course, was the founder of the Fabians uh, and the New Statesman, and he was colonial secretary, I think, from 1929 to 1931. But by then he was Lord Passfield. Uh, and he summed up uh, he, how, how he saw Jews when he declared that French German Russian socialism is Jew ridden. We, thank heaven, are free. Why? There's no money in it. So, I mean, this is the, this is, uh, the Labour right. Uh, and yet the Labour right was allowed to run with the anti-Semitism campaign, the anti-Semitism allegations, as if they had clean hands, uh, when, of course, they had nothing of the sort. I really, uh, I really wish to finish on, uh, on this. Although you wouldn't see it today, uh, or, or wouldn't hear of it today, when the Nazis came to power, of course, most Jews were horrified. Uh, and they launched a boycott. It was quite spontaneous. People just didn't buy uh, German goods. Uh, the Zionists, however, 
were, were struck with horror at this, uh, the idea, because they wanted to do business with the Nazis, not, uh, not fight them. They saw it, in essence, as a golden opportunity. And uh, Francis Nicosia, in his book, uh, Zionism and Antisemitism in Nazi Germany, wrote, uh, and Nicosia is a pro-Zionist historian, so positive was its assessment of the situation, this is earlier from 1933, the German Zionist Federation announced its determination to take advantage of the crisis to win over the traditionally assimilationist German jury to Zionism. Because although, uh, again, history is rewritten uh, and being Jewish and being Zionist is treated as one and the same, in Germany at the time, uh, uh, just 2% of German Jews were affiliated to Zionist organizations. Uh, it, was a ta it was a fringe movement. Uh, but of course, today, uh, all of that is forgotten. And Berl Katznelson, uh, who was a founder of Mapai, uh, what became the Israeli Labour Party, an editor of Davar, as well as Ben Davar being the, the history of newspaper, as well as Ben Gurion's affected deputy, saw the rise of Hitler, and I quote, it's from it's from Tom Segev's book, The Seventh Million. He saw the rise of Hitler as an opportunity to build and flourish like none we have ever had or ever will have, unquote. Ben-Gurion himself was even more optimistic. The Nazi victory would become a fertile force for Zionism. And that, again, is in, is in, uh, is in Segev's The Seventh Million. And Joachim Prinz, who was a, a, a prominent leader of the German Zionists before emigrating into the United States, and he became chair of the American Jewish Congress, and I think deputy president of the World Jewish Congress, admitted it was a morally disturbing to seem to be considered as the favorite children of the Nazi government, particularly when it dissolved the anti-Zionist youth groups and seemed in other ways to prefer the Zionists. The Nazis asked, for a more Zionist behavior. And this was not, this was not uh, uh, isolated, if you like. Uh, this was a general feeling amongst most of the Zionist leaders. And Etan Bloom, in a PhD thesis uh, for Tel Aviv University, Arthur Rupin and the production of the modern culture, quoted Emil Ludwig, uh, the world famous biographer who expressed the general attitude, as he said, of the, of the Zionist movement. He said, Hitler will be forgotten in a few years, but he will have a beautiful monument in Palestine. You know, the coming of the Nazis was rather a welcome thing. Thousands who seemed to be completely lost to Judaism were brought back to the fold by Hitler. And for that, I'm personally very grateful to him. And the Zionist national poet, Nachman Bialik, volunteered that, quote, Hitlerism has perhaps saved German Jewry, which was being assimilated into annihilation. Well, unquote. Well, I think we all know what happened to German Jewry, and it, but those who remained were annihilated, but they weren't annihilated by assimilation. So that is really a potted biography or history uh, of the Zionist movement and its attitudes at the time to the rise of the Nazis and the policies that followed in terms of the refugees. Uh, I say there is much more to read in the book, 
And that is really just a short exit, but I hope uh, it satisfies you. Thank you. And I'm happy to take questions from people and contributions.